0: You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. We've had the State of the Union Address, and next week in South Africa, we've got the State of the Nation Address. But let's have the State of Everything Address now with Russell Lamberti, who is the founder of ETM Macro Advisors based in the Western Cape. It's been a hell of a start to 2020, hasn't it, Russell? And I suppose a belated Happy New Year to you. But it has been an incredible start market-wise, politically, and everything else, I think.
1: Yeah, thanks, Lindsay. Good to be with you, and all the best for the year ahead to you as well. Yes, Thank I think you. I think it has been. You know, I'm actually personally on a, on a bit of a social media hiatus, and uh, so have been somewhat able to remove myself from from a lot of the the noise that that is out there. We live in very noisy times, and uh, it's been quite refreshing to <laughs> to just step back from it all. But you know, there are there are always uh, fascinating goings on, and and there's a lot to, to talk about, I guess it is It is shaping up to be a very interesting year.
0: Yes, it really is. I know that last time, a couple of times ago, When we spoke, we got into a little bit of a fight when it came to politics. So I don't want to focus too much on politics, otherwise our emotions may become inflamed. But I do have to say one thing, and you can just dismiss it as much as you like, that when I saw the State of the Union address from Donald Trump, I went back into YouTube and looked at Hitler and Mussolini and Kim Jong-un speeches and the way that people reacted, and there were several parallels there. It was almost like a dictatorship that was unfolding before my very eyes.
1: Well, we, we've reached uh, Godwin's law in this conversation very quickly. Godwin's law s- states that uh, every conversation ends up uh, with a comparison to Hitler eventually. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I think Trump, he's this enigmatic figure who we've now known about for for a good number of years uh, in office. I, I think he's going to win a second term. Yes. And, and I think we've got to kind of come to terms with the sort of very unconventional person that he is. I'm less interested in his style Although I'm not saying that it's in, insignificant, it's it's very important in terms of the, the populist and popular movement that he kind of leads, I suppose. But if you look at the practicalities on the ground, for now things are working out okay for the U.S. Now I think there, I, I think the the U.S. economy continues to store up a lot of problems, not least of which resides in these, in these huge deficits that Trump is running. Um, tax cuts are, are a great idea um, if you continue to balance the budget. If you cut government pork and government fat elsewhere, um, that can be a real stimulus to the economy in a genuine sense. I think what we've seen is as Trump's tax cuts have come through, the spending has not declined. If anything, it's gone up. So Trump is running you know, n- near trillion dollar annual deficits at the moment. And that just means that the US continues to store up Bigger debts, higher taxes in the future to, to pay for all these debts, higher inflation risk, I think, in the future as well. So Trump's going to have to face his moment where where these these deficits, which which kind of feel good in the short term, uh, come home to roost. On the other front, uh, the, the Chinese tariff stuff is kind of, you know, bobbling up and down. And now I hear China might uh, cut tariffs t- to the U.S. And so there might be some sort of trade on taunt. And, and this kind of goes back and forth. And, and again, I think a lot of this is noise. I think there continues to be the big, the big backdrop to this, which is really the, the sort of China-US geopolitical game that's that's going on, and that is going to be pretty destabilising. I think, on the whole, uh, you know, over the next decade or so.
0: Yeah, I think it is as well. And it's very interesting that the Chinese have just suddenly come out almost off the cuff and decided they're going to do halve tariffs on $75 billion worth of of US goods. And I do think that the coronavirus has something to do with that because they, as I said in a previous interview this morning, they need to save face. And face is very important when it comes to dealing with the Chinese and and it's part of the Chinese psyche, if you like. So it is an incredibly volatile and interesting dynamic that is playing out before i very eyes nice, almost hour by hour
1: yeah look as i say having stepped back from a lot of the the high frequency uh, news flow and, and some of the noise i'm not an expert on viruses like this and the epidemiology of them and how they spread and all these sorts of things by no means um i, I do remember the sars virus and health officials tend to be quite proactive these things tend to be storms in in teacups i accept that, that there's clearly a scenario, I suppose, where this thing spreads much further and much wider and much deeper than than one thinks it can, and, and that can cause a lot of panic and fear and, and you know, that sort of uh, deterioration in market sentiment and, and that sort of panic can potentially, in a fragile system, an over-indebted system, a highly leveraged system, can, can maybe cause um, some problems. But i got to say, on the whole, my sense is that is that this is all going to blow over and we'll look back similarly to how we look back at the SARS thing and, and kind of say, well, oh, that didn't really have, have a major, massive impact. Now, as I say, I, I reserve the right to be humbly wrong on that. And, and uh, hmm. what, what, one, one obviously wouldn't want to dismiss and, and just sort of dismiss it out of hand. But it does feel like a typical kind of news fear cycle when there's not much else going on. And so everyone's kind of jumping on this. Uh, I mean, are you, you know, accusing the
0: media be- of being flighty when it comes to this thing? In other words, if we don't have anything to talk about, then we'll find something to talk about. Are you accusing the media, i.e., me, of being less than scrupulous?
1: I would never cast aspersions on the on the wonderful and glorious media that we have, <laughs> uh, Lindsay.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Yes, anyway, <laughs> the, the coronavirus rumbles on. But I did see some very disturbing pictures of these giant trucks in Wuhan province this morning on television, spraying buildings, I mean, all over the place, and people in white suits. It was quite extraordinary. But yes, history does dictate that these viral incidents and i'm not talking about social media here i'm talking about a real virus do tend to to blow over and a vaccine will be will be found and hopefully even though it's doubling almost every week in terms of the number of people infected and also the number of people that are dead which is now probably around about 600 let's talk about the economy though because i did see a sort of a superhero style headline from one website this morning, and you've, you've sort of stepped back from websites and social media, but it said central banks versus the coronavirus, as I say, like a superhero thing going on there. But central banks, of course, are in the ascendancy and will always be because they provide money and you've got to follow the money.
1: Well, central banks are your quintessential hammer and every problem they see looks like a nail. And so anything that, that seems to be disrupting or disruptive to societies to markets, we now have this ideological pathology where we think that central banks can fix it, um, and basically what that means is if we can just create enough liquidity if we can print more money if we can if we can drop interest rates more, if we can provide more accommodation of money into the banking systems well that that'll, that'll kind of cover a, a multitude of, of problems so we've really, we 've really now distilled this down to to central banks. Are the answer and are the solution to a lot of these problems, and I think central bankers love it. Um, they, uh, like any bureaucrat, want want to expand their their influence. Any organisation wants to wants to grow in an influence and and stature and so on. But to be talking about dealing with the f- the fallout and the problems of a virus by the central bank, I think shows how far we've come in this monetary insanity that we've been living in for. At least the last 10 years but really really escalating for the last you know 25 years or so 30 years
0: before you Um, go on russell sorry you've just used the term monetary insanity in other words you disagree with the priming of the system of via liquidity is that what you're saying
1: yes i think that this problem in many ways started at in the greenspan era as far back really as 1987 the 80s was you know fostered this huge bubble in stocks we had the big 87 stock market crash Greenspan flooded it with liquidity. He did it again in the 90s. He did it again in the late 90s. did it again in the early 2000s. Bernanke took over, tried to raise rates through the late 2000s. And then as the whole system fell over again, they've pumped vast quantities of money into financial markets. And what we have, again, is a renewed bubble cycle, um, huge misallocations of capital, big leveraged private equity and and venture capital, um, you know, investing going on. Increases in inequality, rising asset prices, and yet, underneath it all, fairly mediocre growth across, across the major economies of the world. A lot of, I think, discontent and angst at the sort of political level, which we've clearly seen coming through in, in the major economies across, and, and now across Europe as well. So, yeah, Lindsay, I, I do. I think, I think that, that these uh, monetary injections are not so much the cure as they are the cause.
0: That's interesting, because the other thing that immediately springs to mind is arrows and quivers. I mean, how many arrows does the Fed or any other central bank have left in its quiver? And if they run out of arrows, then maybe they go for the bazooka. They become a little bit more aggressive. But what more do they have? in reserve, should something go awry? In other words, if there's a real crisis rather than just the the stock market not doing much and Mr. Trump wanting them to stimulate, what can they do if something really happens, which is quite serious?
1: Well, that's a good question. I I think the fairly straightforward answer is that there's no limit in theory to what the central banks can do. Since they're, in modern times, creating money on computers nowadays rather than, per se, print, printing actual money, you can you can create as many digits and ones and zeros as you like on a computer. And um, the central banks have unlimited ability effectively to create money. Yes. What they don't have is control over the consequences of that. And that's because those consequences take place in a highly complex system, a system of interplay between, between financial markets with which just on their own are, are massively complex, um, let alone when you talk about how those financial markets interact with the economy and with society and with politics. So I think as we, as we continue to move down this path where we shift the burden onto the central banks um, and quite frankly, onto, onto any sort of central planning agency, whether it's a, a treasury department, a, you know, a tax and, and spending department or, or a central bank itself, as we shift the burden of trying to fix all our problems onto these guys we're just centralizing the risk of of potentially big error down the line um and you know 2008 was this this massive cluster of errors that that took place in a very short space of time because we had i think structured our financial system in in a very centralized way and central banks are at the at the epicenter of that monetary central planning, let's call it. Um, people tend to think of central banks as capitalist free market institutions, but they, they simply are not. They are creations of governments, they're creations of, of nation states to run the nationalized, monopolized currency. So the South African Reserve Bank runs the RAND and, and so forth. These are the furthest things from, from, from free market uh, decentralized institutions. And when they go wrong, they go very, very badly wrong, and we've we 've seen that so you can print a lot of money, but um, you 're playing with fire and that's that 's increasingly i think what's what 's emerging in uh in, in the world of global finance and,
0: and economics. Okay, let's set up a new country now, and we start from scratch. We're setting up this new country. Uh, you're going to be the prime minister, the president, whatever the political system dictates. And because of a lack of candidates, you're, you're appointing me as your finance minister, all right? Yes. Stop laughing. And. Um, <laughs> What I'm going to do is I'm going to say, well, the central bank is not going to pump money into the system and give it to the Wall Street primary dealers. It's going to give every single citizen a certain amount of money because we are a consumption-led economy. We've got a few people digging things and making things uh, somewhere in the middle of the country, but most of the economy is driven by consumption. So what we're gonna do is not give it to Wall Street, we're gonna give it to the people. Every single person is going to be given 10,000, whatever the currency is. Let's call it Lamberti dollars at the moment. So we're gonna give everyone 10,000 Lamberti dollars and they must spend it in a certain way. They've gotta buy Lamberti land uh, goods made here. Uh, They can buy a little bit of everything else, but it's very controlled. The 10,000 is controlled. And so you give the power and the money to the people rather than to the Wall Street dealers because Wall Street is part of Lamberti land. What do you think about that, instead of the priming of the system, the financial system, via the central bank system?
1: I think it sounds like the perfection of socialism.
0: I'm not a socialist. I was just putting forward the no. idea. But if we could adapt it to I, not, a I'm capitalist to say, uh, a capitalist ideology rather than a socialist one, then I think it could possibly work because that's what they're doing. If you're saying that my idea, the encapsulation of socialism, uh, then surely that's what the central banks are doing, but they're concentrating it in the hands of the very few, i.e. the Wall Street people.
1: Yeah, so I think what you have with central banks is, is you have – Monetary central planning—that—that's you know—that—that's that, not a conspiracy. That's just a fact of what central banks do. So they are essentially modern-day monetary politbureaus, if you like. The communist countries absolutely loved the institution of central banking and used it liberally to to print currency. And it's—I'm uh, pretty sure it's true to say that every communist block, Eastern bloc country and in fact uh, all communist countries from from china to to venezuela in the sort of modern sense um have created hyperinflation um they've debauched and debased their currency through central bank money printing so so socialism and central banking are, are very very uh, friendly allies and yes that's a so the central banks have been engaged in monetary central planning and you're absolutely right they they pump that money into the financial sector now that sort of feels capitalist to people. It has this kind of Michael Douglas, Wall Street sort of feel to it. Um, but it's, it's still central planning. It's still, it's still creating currency for a favored class. Now, you might change that class of people to a different class of people. Um, but once you give money into people's hands, again, you can control how much you give people, but you can't control the social and economic consequences of that. And one of the obvious consequences of what you've just described if everyone's bank account goes up by, say, 10000 Lamberti dollars, is that prices are going to rise immediately in the market. You're going to get inflation. Um, You're going to get harmful boom and bust. You're going to get misallocation of resources. And after that whole round of of pretense of wealth, you're going to end up where you were, which is that you didn't actually create additional new resources, real new wealth. You just created currency. And that's precisely why printing money ultimately – either just doesn't work at all or very profoundly and significantly distributes resources to Those people who get the money first and who can spend it quickly because if Mm. you can spend it before prices go up in the economy, you can acquire wealth for yourself.
0: I, as finance minister, will control it. There will be vouchers and you can only spend a certain amount a month. It's like a credit card being maxed out, as people say. Uh, You can't spend any more. It's going to be controlled spending. It's going to be socialism and capitalism and a meeting of the minds of those two ideologies and it will be a perfect world. But, Russell, we're going to... (laughs) <laughs> you're the president <laughs> you've got to rein me in
1: yeah Actually, I, I think i'd offer you a very very early retirement
0: thank you very much i'll take it with my ten thousand dollars south africa now please state of the nation address uh, next week 13th of february on the 26th i think we have the budget and then on the 27th of march we have the pronouncements from a particular rating agency i.e moody's So, an important time for us
1: yeah, it is. Um, you know, we, we have this joke at ETM that the, the next budget is the most important budget ever. And the reason why it's a joke is because they say that about every Everyone. American election. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but this, the, dare I say, this time is different. Um, the, the reason why these budgets are becoming progressively more important every year, and this is not necessarily going to be true every year into the future, but why they're getting more important currently uh, is that um, we just so South Africa gets more and more indebted, more and more fiscally precarious, and uh, paints itself you know deeper and deeper into this into this corner where we lose degrees of freedom. We lose yeah you know, South African government loses freedom to act. Um, revenue raising possibilities are, are diminishing. It still has freedom to to act and move. It's still selling bonds in the bond market, and global investors and local investors are still gobbling those bonds up because they are offering yield and there's no obvious sign you know anytime soon that the South African government will default outright on its debt obligations. So the the music continues to play for now but um th- this budget is really another look at how how serious is the Ramaphosa administration and the Tito Mboweni treasury at genuine turnaround strategies. H- how serious are they that that they acknowledge the bad trajectory that, that South Africa is on, and um, how willing and able are they to to implement genuinely tough fiscal reforms that get us to a balanced budget over the next couple of years? Uh, we, we need a we need a credible plan for that, and we need some serious action. And it's got to be big stuff. It can't just be tweaking the budget at the margins, which is what's been going on for the last few years. So. Really, I think that's what's at stake, and if it's and if we see more of the same, if it's if it's status quo, I think that's that's very negative. And, and um, you know, Moody's, are, I think, are going to need to see something quite meaningful. I have my opinions about Moody's and, and how relevant the Moody's rating really is, which I which I think is an overblown and overstated risk as well in the sense that I, I think South Africa, quite honestly, is already a, a junk grade fiscal uh, situation. But nonetheless, everyone's focused on Moody's. And unless we see something really meaningful in February and genuinely transformative in terms of you know, reforming this budget, um, you know, I think Moody's eventually will have no choice
0: but to, but to go to a downgrade. But do you believe that Moody's, like the coronavirus, is just an overblown media-prompted, not scam, but certainly a diversion, if you like?
1: Absolutely, I think I think the the local um, financial media, you know, have run out of things to write about um, because because we've been in this in this kind of market purgatory for for you know so long now that uh, you know the economy's been going nowhere for a decade, um, and so Moody's is is kind of this this lovely cliffhanger story that that uh, the financial journals are jumping on. Will they? Won't they? It's a, it's a nice will they won't they story, you know. So you can sell you can sell copy. Um, but really, if a handful of Moody's analysts held the whole fate of an entire country's economy in their hands, then uh, everything we know about finance and economics and markets would essentially be wrong. Uh, in reality, prices and markets and, and capital movements are made by um, active buyers and sellers of, of, of securities and of assets. And those are those prices are being made in the market on a daily basis in a very liquid way. And, and Moody's is, is relatively inconsequential, I think, in the final analysis um, for, for where South Africa is. I think the market is already trading uh, and has been for, for about four years already since the Nenegate scandal is really trading as if South Africa is already a, a downgraded country.
0: Yes. And of course, what's going on behind the scenes is something that we can't predict and something that we can't speculate upon. But I do know that there is anonymity when it comes to pronouncements from from the government, for example, Sir Ramaphosa is the antithesis almost of Donald Trump, because he's never out there. He's never making statements. And maybe that's a good thing. But do you sense that there's any chance that things are happening behind the scenes? There are wheels within wheels, and we just don't know about them at the moment, and things will get better?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that that's been the theory for a good few years now, so the theory was, you know, Zuma's got to go, and and Ramaphosa is the is the moderate uh, reformer who can come in and with it with his sort of even keeled approach can slowly but steadily kind of sort things out and right the ship. What we've seen in practice is that his ability and I think his willingness to be the the, the, the strong reformer is quite limited. Certainly, his his ability to the, the, the rail politic, the, the inside politics of the ANC is a course that's been set for quite some time and is very, very difficult to change in reality. Anything you want to announce, you have to implement in reality. You have to if you want to if you want to sack uh, five or ten thousand ESCOM employees, you have to actually go and do that. And you have to you know, manage the fallout and, and, and the potential unrest that can, that can come from something like that and, and so on and so forth. This, this runs right through the organization. So, so I think that what we've actually got to do is rather than continue to speculate about what Ramaphosa may or may not be able to do is to really just look at and monitor the, the hard facts on the ground. Is the net effect of a Ramaphosa administration is it having bearing and, and finding traction in some hard kind of objective numbers that we can actually track? Are we seeing an improvement in the energy in the energy grid? Are we seeing um, better investment levels? Are we seeing a rising rising confidence and we, and we get these sorts of data points from from various sources on a, on a monthly or quarterly basis with, a, with only a slight lag and with only a slight delay So, so we can actually keep track of these things in a, in a fairly objective way. And the reality there is that Ramaphosa, in practice, is the Ramaphosa administration doesn't seem to be that different from what we had with under, under the Zuma administration. There, there isn't this very very strong reformative traction that that people had hoped for. So um, I think we just got to continue to monitor that sort of data, and if and when it starts to change, then we can start to raise our eyes and lift our view a little bit and get a little bit more optimistic. But Quite frankly, until then, um, th- this, this, this ongoing will he, won't he speculation about whether Ramaphosa can or can't, um, I, th- I just think leaves us in, in a bit of a sort of analytical cul de sac that's not really helpful.
0: And actually, it's become rather boring as well. Yeah, Russell, exactly. um, on a personal note, and you can tell me to go and jump in the lake after I ask you this question. Are you investing in South Africa at the moment, personally?
1: Lindsay, um, no, not at the moment. I think that I'd like to see um, the RAND at much more favourable, i.e. undervalued levels.
0: You want it to be weaker, in other words, before you tip your think, toes in the water?
1: I think you'd need to see a weaker RAND. As far as global asset allocation is concerned, I, I don't think the RAND is offering glaring value, certainly not, nothing like it did in 2001 and two, when, when there was that huge sell-off, and not even like it did in 2016 when there, when there was that big sell-off. Um, I think that there are, are arguably pockets of value uh, in, in the stock market in South Africa. Um, there's certainly more than pockets of cheapness. Um, whether that cheapness will be validated into something that actually de- delivers a decent investment return very much matters, and comes down to the you know the macro environment, which at the moment is 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 not great. And and cyclically, if anything looks like South Africa looks to be slowing down and, and turning lower again, possibly as a result, at least partly, of this of this load-shedding cycle that we've been in now for, for a good couple of months. So, um, you know, I don't find a lot of attraction to SA, but holding cash in RANDs at, at a decent interest rates and in some of the money market um, opportunities that you can get is not too bad. Uh, the currency is not being horribly mm-hmm. mismanaged. Uh, the central bank remains a, a well-run institution in South Africa. The banking system is, I think very deep down structurally potentially vulnerable because of, because of how South Africa is, has gone and because of how the macro economy is. But on the surface, the banks are still, you know, well run and and pretty well prudently managed. And so, you know, cash investments in South Africa are, um, offering you some good yield in a world where you just really, really struggle to get any yield. And then finally on on an investment like bonds, you're clearly getting some, some pretty chunky, you know, yield out further along the curve, whether you, um, particularly want to be lending money to the South African ANC government to do what it likes to do is a matter for, for another discussion. But uh, it's it's hard to justify uh, committing capital that you that you don't want to lose to South Africa. If you have some speculative money on the side and you want to put that in some very, very beaten down South African stocks with the potential that with a little bit of you know political reformation and a little bit of recovery here some of those stocks are going to outperform very well but I, I would I would be using uh, betting money rather than rather than core uh, retirement money
0: okay so you are makes... sort of hail Mary five or ten percent of your portfolio is what you're saying
1: yeah I think uh, possibly even less than that but uh, but yes a small portion of your portfolio leaving some chips on the table on some of these incredibly cheap stocks some of them will go to zero some of them have have already gone to zero. There's been some carnage in the South African stock market in the last uh, ten years. One thinks of just, for example, the construction sector, which has been, uh, you know, heavily, heavily beaten down. Some some stocks in that sector are, are, are probably going to survive, and and if they're around to tell the tale, they'll they'll get some benefit, uh, you know, in the next. In the next upcycle, if there's a global upcycle, if, if there's a commodity bull market, which there is bound to be again at, at some point in the future, some of these stocks are, are going to deliver something decent. But as I say, one's got to spread one's risk around on some of these things because they are priced for extremely bad outcomes and some of them will will realize those outcomes.
0: My very final comment is something that was actually quite impactful and you are very good at cutting through the crap and giving it to us straight. You just said if you buy a – well, you didn't say it in these words, but my phraseology you'll have to accept – if you – by a South African government bond you're lending money to the ANC and in to my mind that is a flawed institution and it's a very good way of putting it would you accept what you've just said yeah i think i
1: think there's you know there, there's two ways that you look at bond market investing or, or any investing any investing you have the the pure you know numbers of it and, and and you know is it a decent investment? is it giving me yield? does it have appreciation potential? what are the return prospects um, and then there's an ethical dimension so so you you might think that buying a, a shares in a particular company are, are very attractive from an investment perspective, but you then may also think that ethically you don't want to do that and you know, there's many reasons why people might not want to own stock in certain companies um, well, the same is true of bonds. Um, you know, on the whole, when you buy a government bond, you are buying what I would call a, a tax confiscation ticket, and you're essentially buying a claim on on your fellow countrymen's um, labour and 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 taxes um, for the government to be able to pay and and service those bonds. So that's the first thing that makes one uneasy about owning bonds, you're lending to an institution that has this this very coercive right to extract money through taxation and many other means of taxes and regulation. But secondly, in in the South African context, you're lending money to a fundamentally criminal organization. This is not a controversial statement. It, It used to be maybe five or 10 years ago. But the ANC, is we now know, is corrupt to the core and has done huge damage to this country. In many ways uh, or at least partly aided and abetted by a um, large institutional market that is willing to buy South African bonds and therefore in a way go along with this game fund this government to do what it does um, and to and to waste resources and to overconsume and to and to pillage and, and, and all these sorts of things so I think from an ethical perspective one does need to stand back and say do we really want to be buying government bonds? Now, maybe the answer is, well, despite all that, yes, we still do because because we've got to somehow protect our clients' wealth in this very difficult world that we've got to navigate. Um, it does offer us big yield. Just because we own this thing doesn't necessarily mean that we endorse everything this government does. And there are ways to rationalize you know, how, how and when one, one can take these sorts of investments. But the bottom line is when you buy government bonds – at least in, in, in an indirect sense, if you're trading those securities, are, are lending money and, if you like, credibility to, to the program of the state. And um, that's very problematic in South Africa's case, I think.
0: Russell, thank you so much for your insight, your extended insight, over half an hour of wisdom. I would love to brand this Lamberti land, but anyway, I won't do. You are <laughs> Russell Lamberti, founder of ETM Macro Advisors in the Western Cape.